Thank, thanks very much, and uh, great pleasure to see so many people. I think this is a great, um, great programme, and I hope there'll be lots of opportunities to talk and exchange ideas in, in the future as well as after this session. Um, yes, just a word about me. So I'm, a, I'm really a reporter. <laughs> That's 25 years of my professional life, most of it at the FT in the States, in London, in uh, France and in Russia, covering the kind of the, uh, the former Soviet space. So I was doing that until the end of, um, well, one year ago, basically. Um, and then I, then I changed for a bit. I was working on a I suppose I, I still think reporting is the most sort of fundamental and exciting thing uh, those of us in this craft can, can do to actually be out in the field empirically gathering information, reporting, trying to tell the truth. Um, but uh, for various different reasons I started, which I'll go into, I started to get quite interested also in a bit more the, you know, the broader picture of how journalism is evolving and how important it can be to try to understand, and this is partly a selfish voyage of discovery for me, to understand more about the digital world and how we need to interact and engage more, perhaps, than we have done traditionally. Um, and so about a year ago, I started doing more some editing rather than primarily reporting, though I still do some writing and so on. Um, and out of that experience, I was one of the editors on what we call the what we used to call the big page, reflecting our print legacy at the FT. We now call the big read. Um, and one of the things I was involved with was actually not only coming up with ideas and commissioning and occasionally writing these big, in-depth, reported articles, but also thinking about how to uh, display them more online, more powerfully, because of course. One thing that the digital era has given us, which we never really had in the paper era that the FT was when I joined it in 1990, is the feedback, the metrics, the data to see how your article is being used and interpreted, how many people are reading it, what the responses are. And one frustration was the big read, which is really the showcase, going in paper terms, but full page, in-house written report analysis, investigation from the best of the FT's own staff. One of the frustrations is that, you know, within a few hours, um, the majority of our readers, I should say, are online now, not in print, you know, and it's posted up and it's maybe flagged up on what we call the skyline at the top of the homepage. But in a few hours, you know, things have changed, other things have come along, it's no longer flagged up and the traffic numbers just plummet like that. And yet you think, particularly not for a breaking news story, but for something like this, which hopefully ought to have a shelf life of days, weeks, months, maybe even years, it's a tragedy that we can't find different ways to kind of sustain the level of momentum and interest and interaction around those sorts of articles. And anyway, so the in the autumn of last year, I was asked to... Um, create and build a new team that we, we call, and we can talk about the terminology, but we called initially smart aggregation. Um, I prefer to call it curation, and I'll go on to say why in a minute. Now, in true digital form, I was asked to come up with a, a sort of a, a title, Five Dilemmas of Aggregation. But so um, clickbait and listicles aside, I'm going to start a little bit from what I've been doing, and then I will conclude with a few thoughts about some of the the dilemmas around what I'm doing now and what I see elsewhere out in the field. 
But let me just begin with that. Um, you may well have seen a lot of these sort of uh, images before, but that top image just is a sort of reminder of the extraordinary degree of volume, churn, activity, processing we get now on, on the web, whether it's Google searches, emails, um, all sorts of other digital related activities, and that's expanding all the time. Um, as the cliche goes, the kind of sipping on the internet fire hose has become more and more challenging for readers. How do they possibly find, read, uh, focus when so much information, both fresh and recycled, is being circulated online all the time? And a sobering reminder, the bottom right, this is a slightly adapted version. Uh, well, sorry, actually, this is a, um, it's one of many sort of analyses that's been done just looking at that expansion, even with this huge expansion in computer processing and storage power, still more is that explosion in information being posted using those media. So it's an impossible situation almost to keep up to date with, to follow everything. So dilemma one, if you like, is the, or not dilemma one, the context of my talk, but the the existential challenge perhaps for journalists and for readers is, you know, how you select a small group of things to read in a day. The second issue, of course, is around distribution. And of course, you know, the uh, I was actually at a seminar a few months ago with a lot of people from Silicon Valley, and they were saying, you know, journalism is probably still one of the few sort of sectors that basically produces its product, writes the article, and then just throws it out. And sort of that's almost it. You know, okay, you've got some readers' letters, you've got the potential online with interaction, but much less focus really has gone into the distribution of that information. You know, in the way that in the past we used to spend a huge amount on printing and distributing and going to news agents and so on. Um, that investment, perhaps, post-production, if I can put it, has kind of faded away somewhat. And this is, a, again, an adapted version of the bottom left graph from the famous New York Times Innovation Report of last year, and that fall in visits to the homepage of one of the best and most reputable media groups in the world. So it's just a reminder of the fragmentation that, you know, these days an awful lot of readers are not even going to the BBC, to the, to the New York Times, to the FT, whatever, as a sort of portal for all their information or a sorting point. We have to increasingly actively go out to find them. So I'll talk in a minute about the, some of the initial products that I've been working on. Um, but let me start with that second point, which is distribution. And it may seem a bit retro. It may seem a bit of a halfway house almost between print and digital, certainly kind of constantly updated, interactive, online information. But email, we found, at least at the FT, and I think a lot of others have who are doing it, is a quite powerful intermediary or intermediate mechanism, despite the fact that, you know, kind of we all have lots of it that we never look at and there's vast amounts of junk email. If you look at some of these kind of broader trade statistics, you'll see that the number of email accounts being created and the amount of email traffic sent, um, and particularly amongst, for example, some of the FT classic users, decision makers, is growing and still growing quite consistently. Partly perhaps because you know, bus business people, decision makers, more senior policy makers and other influencers, they use their email inbox still as quite an important part of structuring their day. And of course, it's there for you to come back to easily. It's not swept away in the stream of Twitter or Facebook or lots of other of the social media forms. 
So it's certainly a form of distribution that we found promising. So back to terminology. Um, and as I say, slightly flippantly, I like to prefer to think of myself not as an aggregator, and I'll go on to that in a minute, but as a curator. Um, so David said, you know, let's not have a corporate PowerPoint, please. So let's start with some art, one of my favorite artists, <laughs> El Greco. And this was an exhibition a few months ago I went to see at the um, Metropolitan Museum in New York, which incidentally has a head of social media. We were, we were walking through the Met, which you know, has this extraordinary collection of hundreds of rooms, you know, hundreds of thousands probably of pieces of art. And, you know, you walk through, oh, that's a Picasso, and that's a Van Gogh, and that's a Monet. And, you know, you get into this kind of hypnotic state, and you almost don't notice anything. So what the Met, and of course all museums do this, is curate. You take a selection, you find a, a narrative or a theme, and you put it all together. And so instead of, you know, whatever they've got, 15, 20 fabulous El Greco scattered around many rooms... They put them all in one place. They borrowed the best El Grecos from various other places, the Hispanic Society of America, for example, in this case. And they create a focus, an event. And the result is, of course, a lot more people who like El Greco, like me, will come and will see and will also be able to compare between it. Now, that's the sort of thing that I'm trying to do um, with what we do at the FT. Now, emails and curated emails, as it were, um, I hand-picked, selected, with a human editorial journalistic judgment and input, both into the selection and the way it's presented, is not new. Um, this is a kind of rather slightly antiquated example, but this was 2007. In fact, since 2005, I believe, Alphaville, which is the FT's markets blog, has put out a curated email. So we've been in the business, if you like, for a long time. As you can see, maybe the, um, the visual layout has somewhat improved over the years. Um, so let's bring us up to date. Um, this is first FT. This is the, the first primarily email product that I um, launched. Um, it's basically now three months old. Um, and the whole idea was get something in your inbox first thing in the morning so you know as you're waking up or having coffee or traveling into work before you get inundated with everything else you can have a quick brief read of interesting information around the world things to read things that matter here's the kind of the focus if you like of it um it's actually we though you probably know we have a paywall at the ft so to read individual articles beyond now three per month you have to pay. Um, but actually, the email itself, all you have to do is go on our site, answer a few questions in a registration process, and you can receive the email. And then it gives you, as I say here, 15 or so selections a day. It includes up to half non-FT as well as FT articles, because our view is we want to be a sort of trusted port of call that people can come to if they share the FT's view of what the big issues are and articles and analysis that's worth reporting wherever it comes from, assuming it comes from a credible source. And we also then, of course, behind each short summary, and here's a, an example, because you'll typically see this on a BlackBerry or a smartphone or whatever, but if you see it in full, you'll see we sort of provide, I hope, enough original content in terms of headlines and hyperlinks and sort of summary of what the item is and why it matters. But we don't provide the full content. We encourage people to then click through to the underlying news material if they want to read more. 
We do it visually as well. You see, we normally have both a, a photo and some form of graphic. Um, and beyond our scrolling back, sorry, so we start with a kind of big news item, a selection of other top news stories around the world, um, a sort of forward-looking two or three big events coming up later in the day, um, and then this food for thought section, so more long reads, laid back, quirky, offbeat things. Um, might not be a burning news story, but interesting stuff that's coming out there. And then we finish this being the FT with a bit of markets data as well. Um, now, I talked about email, but in fact, um, to me, again, email is simply one distribution platform amongst many. We take the content, we cross-publish it on the FT website um, after we've sent out our email. Um, we promote it on social media. I just launched this 10 days ago, so we're now doing a kind of 60-second summary video on our, uh, on our video page, so you can actually see three of our picks um, each day in a very short time, um, normally with some visuals again, some graphs or photos or images of the, of the big stories of the day. So we're trying to get what we think is value judgment to readers in whatever form they find practicable and usable. So that was, for, that was first FT, so this daily free summary. Um, uh, but I'm looking at a whole series of different products. And this is the first of these. This actually launched just this week. Um, so free lunch. And it's, and it's not, of course, which fills the maxim. If you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch is the phrase um, often used by economists. So this is a, a full text, much more in-depth um, original content email, which basically takes one big economic policy issue of the day. And Martin Sanbu, my colleague, who's a, a leader writer and economist himself, writes it. So as you can see, this was yesterday's, I think. Um, and it was all about, primarily about the Greek restructuring. So he'll again, he'll write a summary, his own analysis, quite personalized in its, in its content. And then also with um, clicks, as you can see, lifts the veil at the bottom there to underlying stories, some FT and some third party content. So that's enough about me and the FT. Let me just talk for a few minutes before I open it up about aggregation, curation, as I've called it um, more generally. I don't say these are really the five necessarily or the principal dilemmas, but to me, here are some of the issues at least to think about in this business, as it were. So the first one is, is really that question of um, if you're essentially providing teasers or highlights of everything that's out there that matters, um, uh, including a lot that's not from your own media organization, or indeed if you're, for example, well, if you're, I won't name names, but uh, if, you, if you are not a media organization yourself, but you choose to take other people's content to flag it up. And of course, there's a huge amount of this sort of recycling that takes place on the web. Um, do you risk basically undermining uh, those who are doing the original reporting and journalism on which your, your tasters are based? Um, if I basically provide the full text content or enough of it in my email, for example, from a rival media organization that you as a reader have no interest in going then to that other group's web website, for example. And in the process, I risk undermining their reputation, their chance to build on their readership, to build new readers, perhaps to 
sell advertising or find other ways to try and make their own journalism sustainable. Um, is that unfair? Um, the second thing I call native journalism, if I like. So if you like, across the whole field of journalism, but even if I narrow it down to my own organisation, for example, the, the FT, um, do I, by providing aggregation, so not original reporting, but um, essentially, again, summaries, highlights, picks, derivative versions of somebody else's work, um, am I diverting resources from the core fundamental role of journalism, original reporting and analysis? Um, the third one, and this comes to my point about terminology, um, automation or what I would think of as aggregation um, versus the idea of human input and hand selection of articles, fundamental. And of course, we see a lot of third party organizations. Emily Bell, of course, gave a very good talk here not so long ago about this whole question, for example, of Facebook, Google, Yahoo, all sorts of essentially technological companies for whom journalism is not um, their primary motive, They're not, it's not their key role, and yet who are driving, of course, huge amounts of traffic based on opaque algorithms of what they consider to be important for their own reasons or supposedly for the interests of their users. Um, so even if you have the most sophisticated, honest, objective form of third-party generator of selections, is that desirable? And secondly, is it valuable? Um, and I'd like to think and hope that actually journalists doing this and journalists providing a human judgment is still very important um, because of the priorities, because of the sense of trying to understand and write in a way that will be attractive to readers, because of the need to verify. Um, and generally also, um, to bring me to my fourth point, to think about how we should be interpreting all of the metrics and the data that comes out of the web um, and how far we should be using, again, more qualitative assessments of what matters. In other words, impact. If I go, for example, when I'm compiling and my team is writing our emails in the morning um, and I look at the pics, and of course I can see all the data on this now, I can see which clicks, which articles people have read, there's a very strong correlation, surprise, surprise, with um, if I go to our website and I look at the articles that are most picked. Um, and that suggests, you know, the wisdom of crowds, there's a certain momentum. If I want to attract new readers, I can follow basically what the machine is telling me about what's most popular. But two things, of course. One, um, readers will only click on the information that's out there to drive traffic. So there's still a very important series of processes of filtering of judgment from the initial reporter through the editors and so on to the selection and presentation of articles which we need to unpack and the second thing of course is even if actually there's an article or two that i see is getting almost no traction very few people are reading it but i personally think is very important it says something original thought-provoking is maybe a less popular subject but is one that deserves wider attention then I fundamentally believe there's a journalistic role in trying to flag that up. And all of the models, including some of the newer media groups that are focusing on this 
set of information based basically on data, automated data on how people read and what people read, risks being, to me, quite dangerously reductive. And I think what we need to re-inject or find new forms to present is the old-style serendipity, the peripheral vision that you get actually in a physical newspaper. If you turn a front page of a newspaper that perhaps had three or five or six articles or maybe in the FT's case, for example, another dozen short little taster items, and you turn it into a smartphone with a responsive design which has a single image and a little bit of text, one story at a time, even that prioritization has a huge um, force towards focusing and focusing in a way that I think can be dangerous because certainly when I read, and I do still read newsprint as well as online, it's actually very often to me the things that I'm not thinking about, that I haven't read before, that I don't instantly think are relevant, that if I tick a search box, I wouldn't type in you know, certain keywords, companies, themes, issues, countries, whatever. It's those things that actually provide the value of what we do and what media organisations overall do. And so that's something we have to fight to preserve. And a final thing, which I think might be uh, you know, it's kind of less existential, but it's very practical, is again how far in this sort of curation or aggregation one should attribute. Um, and if I go back to, well, either my colleague Martin's um, new free lunch, uh, or if you look at um, the first FT examples, you'll see that we always... I mean, as I say, we've got a mix of FT and non-FT, um, but we'll always attribute, you can see Wired, New York Times, as well as FT, for example, on, on that page. Um, and uh, actually a lot of FT on that one, in fact, ProPublica and Frontline, for example, London Review of Books, Science Magazine, The Economist on this one. So I think attribution is fundamentally important as well as actually providing the links to those underlying third-party sites and I think if we get the balance right then everyone can gain. What's perhaps a bit more of a, a challenge is suppose you didn't actually identify an article from a third-party media by looking at that media yourself but if you came to it through somebody else's curated or aggregated sites, should you at that point attribute the intermediary as well or as instead as the underlying, um, as the underlying article? So anyway, those, those are my suggested five dilemmas, if you like. Um, I think my answer to all of them is a compromise is moderation in all things, um, but I throw it out to you to, to discuss those and uh, other issues, and I'll throw it open. Thank you very much.